what is important for me today here on the Dewpoint Report to talk about what has been happening across the country, not only over the weekend, but over the last week and perhaps what has been an amalgamation of occurrences over the previous years and decades. But really what happened to Mr. Floyd was tragic and unfortunate because though there are good and outstanding police departments throughout the country that do follow appropriate de-escalation techniques and their procedures in accordance with standard operating guidelines, in this instance, the authorities, having recognized the sense of urgency for justice, expedited the investigation and acted expeditiously. Which in our society should seem just. This is why we have a justice process. It is clear, though, that many in society do not feel the justice process is a just process. One cannot help but see a parallel in what happened in El Cajon, California years ago and the person that was affected there. And of course, as I mentioned, other situations years previous. But in El Cajon, much was learned there, including the fact that people not from the immediate community were suddenly among the protesters and provoking others to rise up. And I'll talk a little bit more about that a little later. Often the detractor protesters deter the nonviolent purpose of the overall protests, as has been seen with the destruction of public property. And the two are not the same. No, nonviolent protests are not the same as the detractor situations that detractor protests cause, such as all of the destruction to public property and private property. In fact, detractors are the antithesis of nonviolent protests. Some people even misquote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his lectures and writings by claiming that he would stand up for such a thing. Well, that is incorrect. He wrote many a thing and gave many a lecture throughout the time that he was alive. And it is interesting because he got along with many people and he also had many discussions with many people. I don't say that because I knew him. I say that because I have read many of the things that he wrote and many of the things that he lectured on. And it's interesting to see the nuances in the perspective with which he wrote and spoke, because it is actually quite expansive. He didn't just write about one thing, and he didn't just interview with one or two people. He spoke to a variety of people and had a plethora of opinions. Yesterday, when I sat down to write my comments, which perhaps was marking to many the last day of May, and because we get so caught up in what each month means and how it's thematic and we are supposed to focus on the theme of the month, it was supposed to be the last day of Mental Health Awareness Month. But I can't help but think 
that really it can't be the last day to have a conversation about the importance of not stopping the conversation on mental health. Because if anything, what the current situation with COVID-19 has shown us is that as we have been minimized as a society and as a globe by not only the sheltering in places, or as in some communities, it's being called a lockdown, or as in others, it's just being a stay in your home until further notice. And other people are being let go from their employment, from their livelihood. We are being reminded that if we don't have the resources that we rely on to pay our bills, pay our mortgages, to stay fruitful members of society, then we are reduced to very elemental structures within our psyche. And if we don't have the very things that keep us together on a daily basis, in some instances in our communities, those are very, very important things. Faith, family, friends, work, financial well-being, mental health can be wrapped around all of those because we need very much our financial well-being to be able to continue paying our bills. We need very much the structure in place to be able to keep a roof over our heads. We need very much financial well-being, yes we do, to be able to continue to keep our mental health together. And it's interesting that as more and more we have a reliance on connectedness through social distancing, it is a connectedness that is at a distance requiring connectivity that is online. But what we have found as societies is that because of economic disparities and social economic disparities that have existed, long existed, which are now being shown more widely, not everyone has access, the same access, to that interconnectivity that is purportedly going to give all of us the ability to move forward into the 21st century. And so the challenge then becomes, we see portions of society disconnected and frustrated because of their inability to stay connected when they very much used to be connected and being told they cannot see friends, family, or loved ones, or even stick to their faith that they perhaps used to have in the same way they used to, but they could connect online, but they don't have the ability to connect online because they don't have the interconnectivity 
because they don't have access to Wi-Fi. And so there are very big challenges, very big disparities that suddenly have been shown more openly and more widely in society that perhaps were not as clearly displayed to a wider swath of the country or of the world. And there is nothing gained, truly nothing gained, by the destruction of businesses which are revenue generators, especially in the fragile conditions of the current economy. Regardless of where anybody stands on the political belief of what a company does or doesn't do at any particular moment in time, because this particular moment in time is about lifting and putting back together economies, one economy at a time, every economy together because of the interconnectivity of all economies. And never has it been ever more present, the interconnectivity of all economies across the world. People doing this are the destroyers of democracy, not builders of peace. And that has become ever clear. It's no wonder that yesterday I had what I would consider a level 11 migraine. One of those that you simply wonder, wow, what is tomorrow going to look like if today looks like this? Because everything was compounding. And at moments I had to turn off the television just to give myself a breather because sometimes it gets to be a little too much and I recognize that I need to step away from the television because it can be just too much and so I can't imagine the level of stress yes that all the healthcare workers all the frontline workers all the essential workers that keep portions of the economy working day in and day out in its most fragile moments in this particular moment in time, which is so difficult because what we are right now is at a most essential moment in time where we do depend on our most essential moments to be held together by people who have the biggest strengths and the abilities to do so. And I say that as a person who once was essential and am not essential anymore. And so now I wonder, what am I good at anymore? But to just look back and wonder of what once was and what once used to be and what will be again. But I do have a concern and I worry about the future pathway of our democracy because it is important for the future. Who funds these people that seek to undermine the prosperity of our democracy? Why do they continue to exist under the beauty of what our country was meant to be? Now, our country is not perfect by any means. It has gone through a few hiccups and a few ebbs and flows for certain. However, every day we all get up and we
try to be that better self, that better sense of how we can make this country better. Because we have to, we have an obligation to do so as members of a society that has long desired to be a democracy. You see, democracy doesn't create itself. It depends on each individual who lives in it. And so what I often question is why the people who question its very functionality, it don't participate in it more. You're probably wondering, what is this lady talking about anyway? Well, I have to, I guess, go back to something I said, oh, eons ago. And it was eons ago. Several decades ago, I was quoted as saying that the worst thing we can be to ourselves is apathetic during times of elections. And I'm paraphrasing. I'd have to find the article. But the point that I was making was that when we don't vote, we reflect apathy in our very existence in democracy. And it's ironic then that it often is the people that don't exercise their ability to vote who then turn around and give some of the biggest criticisms. And so this is why it is essential that in this pending election, which this is an election year, that vote is so essential and critical. Now, I do remind myself often that we certainly live in a complex world and there hardly ever is an easy answer, though we do try to simplify things for ourselves, don't we? But in the current COVID pandemic, which has certainly wound us to our simplest common denominator, which is humanity. It has been the press that has towed the line of information in the relay of knowledge and denoting the stats on a daily basis, such as that the public can be aware of all these daily changes. And I certainly see how science has moved the statistics on a daily basis, rapidly moving forward towards solutions. And it's the press, the media, that has kept up with all of that information and relaying it over to the public so that we can absorb all of that and be able to stay as informed as possible. Now, it's an ever-changing situation, I know. Difficult to keep up with. Do we social distance? How far do we social distance? When can we go back to work? How do we go back to work? And so now, compounded with the fact that so many people have had their livelihood destroyed, what is that going to mean for the broader picture of a healing economy? And then, to extra complicate the situation, what does that mean for our global leaders across the world who were planning on attending a G7 meeting. What does that say to them 
that we may or may not be prepared for the global stage to invite them in and have this conversation about how do we move forward as a country in beginning to rebuild the economy in a necessary manner for the 21st century. Now, that's why I question what the true purpose of these individuals is and has been, because they are not the nonviolent protesters that are speaking to a reform of policy. That is not nonviolence. Neither is moving forward towards any kind of social distancing. And that is why it additional complicates a situation in the middle of this pandemic. I was additionally perplexed when I saw a reporter arrested. Was I witnessing complete disregard for members of the press as they represent the protections of the First Amendment under the Constitution? It was difficult for me to see on the evening news because the First Amendment seems to be one of the last vestiges of the Constitution that are truly protected, given there have been so many attempts to change and adjust the Constitution through the piecemeal cases that have rattled through the Supreme Court, changing and maneuvering through the Americans with Disabilities Act, Roe v. Wade, campaign finance reform, immigration reform, etc. And not to mention how the lapsing of the assault weapons ban has affected the ability for people to have protections. that the Brady Bill used to uphold. And so, with so much potential, at this particular moment, to rebuild our economy, there is one person that stood out, I mean, there are many that stood out, obviously, but there is one person that stood out in an interview saying that nobody could tell 
And this is how she said it. She said, no one who is brown can tell black people how they cannot protest, can or cannot protest. And it's a difficult conversation until you have a conversation. Because though that may be a specific blueprint of curricula, it can be certainly better understood through the fact that we are a diverse country with diverse experiences. And until people sit down and speak to each other, they don't understand where the other individual is coming from. And so what does define a brown person is not the same as what defines a black person. It's not the same as what defines a white person. And that's why... When Dr. King talked about not being looked at or judged by the content, he wanted to be looked at by the content of it. He wanted to be, and I shall quote him. He wanted to live in a nation where his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, what did that mean? It didn't mean that he knew about what the concept of profiling is. It didn't exist in the same way that it does now. He was talking about the fact that he wanted the quality of the person to be looked at, to be understood. He wanted something deeper to be understood. A melding of society requires a true recognition of the person. And you don't get that through a brief description of someone in two seconds. And so you can't tell somebody, obviously, what they can or cannot do. But it's deeper than that. And I say that because in the Latino experience, clearly, even Latinos, because if we really are talking about whether there was an experience similar to the African experience, there was. It was not exactly the same. So no one can ever say that they had the same experience as someone else, ever. But you can say and better understand if an individual comes from a lineage where they in their family also had African-American background, where they understand another African-American person who comes from a different lineage that also was African-American. So if they understand the existence of an understanding which is similar to their experience, then it is deeply rooted in their experience. And I say that because the slave trade 
did expand throughout Latin America as well. And so the Latin American experience is, is deeper than the experience of most. And this is why one cannot just say all brown people have one experience, all black people have one experience, all white people have one experience. That is an over-exaggeration of any one person's truth. Just the way I have an experience that is not like my siblings' experience, their experience is not like mine. You cannot oversimplify a person's experience. And so, I disagree with the fact that one person can say no one person speaks for another. It really depends on an individual's experience. And until you get to know what that person's experience has been throughout the expansiveness of their existence, then you can better understand who and what and where and why and to what extent they have lived their experience. And so this afternoon, when the spokesperson gave a little bit of a talk on behalf of the presidency, that person did speak to some clear understandings of what would be the potential understanding of a world beginning to change. And so what I wrote yesterday gave me pause to this. My conclusion last night was the following. The complete disregard for the AFL-CIO office was the last straw for me and full awareness that they were likely anti-union, union busters or people that had been recently let go from work in the film industry or a complete disregard or had watched so much Netflix, Hulu, HBO, Showtime that they had rabid reaction to something they had seen. Of course, there is the possibility that my migraine is just truly annoying and I just don't understand the situation at all. And on that, I ended and I said, I still believe tomorrow will be a better day. And then I awoke to today, understanding that the situation had actually gotten worse. Yet in neighborhoods, there had been communities that had de-escalated their protests in an effective and positive manner. And then this. What is noticeably clear on this blue June day is that the conscience of the country has begun to clear from a heavy heart to a heartfelt understanding of what the future will bring when communication and understanding begins to make way for clear reform. In the broader context of international policy, were the detractors the same people that always aim to deny peaceful policy development? 
Or were they simply people who want to deny democracy and fair elections? So you have to ask yourself for a moment, what really goes on in the mind of a protester? Because there are clear delineations. If someone is protesting a situation and they stand up for something, they are trying to say they don't agree. But it's one thing to not agree. And sometimes people can say it in one way and have a communication with someone about it. Or they go and stand somewhere. Or there are these people who are extremely destructive and those are not the same ways to say they want change those are not the same thing this is why it was so important for me to write something because at first i thought this is not my place to say anything but actually it is because i am responsible to say something if i see that something is not appropriate or if I see something that is. And so, why did I call out the uh, egregious actions of the AFL-CIO office? Well, you know, the AFL-CIO stands for a lot of positive things. A lot of positive change has gone on because of that organization. And you cannot tell me that the individuals that destroyed that office had anything good to do there. You cannot tell me that the people that destroyed the national monuments had anything good to do there. You cannot tell me that those individuals had anything about democracy in mind. And so those are my thoughts on the Dewpoint Report. If you have anything to say, let me know. I await your thoughts. <laughs>